0: Welcome film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, and let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Hello to our listeners and welcome to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I want to ask our audience something. When you watch a movie, do you ever pay attention to the credits? If so, you probably have noticed there are a lot of different people with the title of producer uh, in one form or another. There's executive producers, associate producers, co-producers, producers, assistant producers, producer's assistant, and more. Well, today, we're not going to be talking about any of those. On this episode, we're going to dig into a line producer and what a line producer does. Our guest today has worked in film and television as a line producer, has also moved into commercial work. And we are happy to welcome Antonio Martinez. Antonio, welcome to the show.
1: Very excited to be here.
0: Thank you for having me. Antonio, we always like to start off each episode learning who our guest is, where they're from. Tell us a bit about their journey. Uh, you were born in Colombia, you spent your formative years here in the, in the United States. What was
1: it that initially drew you to filmmaking and television? I, I think I always had a, some sort of love for the craft, ever since like I was a kid. Uh, I was lucky to go to a high school that had a pretty good media and broadcast class. Uh, with all the toys. Uh, and that was my first experience with like creating content and, and putting it out there for people to see. We've talked a bit about
0: education. We've had film professors on, we have had we have educators. Not a lot of high schools have areas where they could expose students to that. So it's nice that you got a head start. Sounds like that school was pretty committed to a more robust arts education or technology education.
1: Yeah, we were pretty lucky. We had great toys. You know, back then uh, the mini DV cameras were, what's were, 2003, 2004, it was it was pretty uh, cutting-edge technology. Technology back then, especially for something to have a home uh, or at a school. So we were lucky enough to be able to take them home, shoot our own content, and if the content was approved, we could broadcast it to the school uh, each Friday on a channel that we had. So that was pretty great. Was it straight like news type of things? Were you able to do skits or shows? Yeah. or? So yeah, it was a combination of both. We had like school news and like sports, and then we also had a segment I created, uh, the teacher approved. It was a comedy sk- skit segment. Uh, and that was my thing. We did comedy stuff, and, and, and it stuck the senior year i just kind of played over and over and we we had a good time doing it yeah so you graduate high school then what? Yeah. So I, I, uh, at first, like, I was kind of aimless. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know, uh, how to get into the industry, especially if you don't live in a, in a, in a city where the industry yeah. is, is big. I went to school for communications. I did not like it. I did that for two years and I was, uh, I took a film class kind of by accident and I found out maybe this is something I can do. Maybe this is something I like and ended up going to Valencia College in Orlando. Did that for, uh, for the, you know, the length of the film program. And, uh, it's, it's not a theory program it was more of a um, hands-on stuff so you know uh, some of the stuff we did was walking around with C stands, learning how to put them down and put flags on it. Uh, you know, the nitty gritty as opposed to the theory stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know,
0: the old C stand relays who could set up the most C stands. And yeah. then was, were there there. Uh, did they like to haze the freshmen with, uh, you know, separate the flags into left-handed and right-handed flags. The, the teachers love to do that, you know, yeah. messing with you. I mean, that's a, that's a way to learn, right? Exactly. I, uh, I helped out recently at a uh, PA training that, that my school, uh, the school I went to does. And, uh, We had them separate the stingers into left-handed stingers and right-handed stingers. (laughs) That's good. And then, you know, you're you're going through, it sounds like the college was more of a uh, prepare you to work on a set. Yeah. As opposed to prepare you for like the broader industry. Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the information is out there for the program and stuff. And uh, But the program back when I went, now it's even bigger, I would say, but they have a lot of money in gear. You know, they had two grip trucks completely packed when a movie wanted to shoot in Florida the head of the program, our executive producer, would reach out to his film uh, producer directors and say like, hey, listen, we can give you all this gear for free. You get a grip truck for free. You get an art department truck for free. You get uh, sound equipment, camera, whatever you need for free, but you have to hire the students. So my first experience in set was on a made-for-TV film with a budget of like $2 million, you know? And not many people could say that. So it's kind of throwing you out to the wolves, right? But you kind of learn with that, right? And really what I love
0: about that, and uh, colleges and universities like take note, whether it's film, whether it's engineering or something, like partnering with organizations and just reaching out, you know, finding ways for students to be able to do real work before they graduate. I mean, it it makes all the difference in the world. A lot of, I mean, back to, you know, when I went to college originally, you know, it's like graduated. Now what? I mean, back in the late 1900s when I went, it was, you were almost expected to take like a year off after college and pack through Europe or go work, you know, on a cruise ship or do do something before getting into the real world. Now I see students graduating college with like four page resumes resumes of all the stuff they do. I mean, granted, a lot of it is probably resume filler. It's like, oh, I went to this club one day so I could uh, put it on my resume. Sure. But it's uh, no, it's nice to hear how the college you went to really was, was thinking ahead sure. and, and giving those opportunities, especially in a um, non-hub.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the goal from the program was to teach you that uh, you know, there's more than just uh, being a director, right? You, yeah. you can work on in the industry and make a living by yeah. being an electrician or being a sed dresser, right? You, you can do that. It's just finding the entry point and finding the right work. And a very good living once you get into the
0: unions. I know in Florida, at least for a number of schools, uh, when you graduate from a film program, you're actually eligible to join IOTC right there. So definitely uh, film students, uh, if you are listening to this, do some research into that. And, and explore what options are available for you. And the other thing you mentioned that I like is, you know, director, but there's more jobs. It's kind of like a reverse pyramid, you know, like at the top, you know, director, writer, but there's only so many jobs. And as you work down more, the more jobs open up for the opportunities.
1: Yeah, that's true. You know, I think everybody that goes into film school wants to be a director. I think that's a general... Uh, consensus, right? The information's never out there of like, well, there's other these other things that you can do, right? Uh even starting as a PA, if you're getting constant work, you can make, you know, you can make good money and start, that's a good entry point to the industry, right?
0: One thing I've noticed and I've heard and I've heard from other film students, it teaches a lot of filmmaking, teaches a lot of hands-on, hands-on on set. Um, but being a line producer, yeah. your producer, not so much on the actual production management part of that. Did you learn any of that when you were in school or was it more learning on the job when you started
1: working it's a good question we actually did but I was not interested in it I did not want to be a producer that was not my idea you know uh, I I wanted to be in the art department you know after I realized like hey maybe a director is not what I want to do because there's more things I can do I wanted maybe to be a production designer you know I uh, uh and that's what was that was my aim so when we did the production uh segment of our program I was not paying attention I couldn't even remember what we talked about set construction set yeah.
0: design yeah. Do, do
1: any fun stuff yeah yeah totally I mean like my, like I said my program is very hands-on so we got to like really work with power tools learn scenic painting make our own props um never to use in any sort of like student project because that was not the aim of the program right it was more to like give you the skills so when you had to work at a workshop for a movie you knew what to do um but yeah that's that was my goal i wanted to do uh first i like scenic painting i really enjoy that uh i like set dressing i did not mind spending the whole day like you know setting down carpet for for a set so i that that was my goal uh, and um, I did that for a few years in the film industry.
0: Looking back, what were some of the films or TV shows that really inspired you or influenced you?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that anybody in the industry, everybody that wants to do this. is a, is a big consumer of of media, whatever it would be. You know, now we have so much more that we can consume. I think that one of the the best assignments I ever did before I joined the film program, and I took the I took a uh, film class in my first college was watching all the Academy Award winners since mm-hmm. like the. 1950s, you know, and that was really enjoyable being able to see uh, how how movies and and stories have been told differently in right. different decades, right? So hard for me to point down exactly which film inspired me. I think there's so many of them. Uh, I, comedy was a big thing for me. I thought oh, it could always be funny. I still think it can be funny. But, uh, but, yeah, comedy was a big thing. Uh, you know, horror, those are always fun. Uh, and, you know, the budgets are, are easier to manage yeah. in a horror film. Um, but, yeah, there's so much stuff. I mean, uh, I couldn't even start listening. Now we spent the whole time listening. <laughs> when
0: I went to film school, one, one of the first classes, you know, history of film, and you watch all these, you know, so like I had seen Casablanca and sure. Parts of Citizen King, you know, but then you go back even further, things like The General, yeah. Buster and yeah. I'd never seen it before. Now it's like one of my favorite movies because the performance and the things... Things he did without saying anything. Yeah. Just his face yeah. that and then um when we were watching Battleship Potemkin, the, yeah. the staircase. Yeah. See, even the first time I watched, not knowing anything, I'm I'm like, oh wow, that's like in the untouchables. And then it's like, oh yeah, the untouchables were homage exactly. to that kind yeah. of the thing, it all comes together. Yeah. And it also, good or bad, a lot of the classic films mirror society, and you could see things have changed for right. the better. Yeah. Through that, and then you eventually moved into commercials. What drew you to
1: commercials after college i moved to new orleans because new orleans was kind of popping and it wasn't as scary as la Uh, i did that for about four four years and i was working constantly in the in the art department i was managing i was not on set i was working in a prop house helping manage it and i enjoy that uh but work started drying up uh i decided to move back to miami job also managing a prop house here, uh, which then became me as kind of de facto head of the camera department at the rental house. Even I had no idea about cameras. I was just kind of learning on the fly. Uh, Miami is not a city. Florida is not a state known for its film anymore. Film uh, uh, incentives. Uh, television is very limited here. So what what really shoots here, right? It's mostly advertising and music video. So I had a friend that was working on... Um, a uh, production company down here and he was uh, producing like small time commercials and, and he brought me on as a, a production manager because he really couldn't afford one, and it wasn't for me, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I turned it down the first time. And then the second time, he's like, Yeah, you should do it, man. If you've been in a set, you know how to do this. So it's been 10 years since then.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned also, we talked about that uh, everybody wants to direct. And I think at heart, everybody is a creator and everybody wants to make their vision. But I don't know if you feel this. For me, when I produce, when I AD, when I do it, it's so satisfying to me knowing that I'm helping someone create their vision because sometimes like we just mentioned about you know production management sometimes visionaries and artists they can only see their art they don't know how to pull all the pieces together yes.
1: and it's uh it's so valuable yeah totally sometimes you know uh i think the biggest the biggest reward as a producer on a set is when you finish you call wrap and it's done and everything went smoothly and no one came to you to congratulate you because you know you did the your job correctly right we're like the silent hero in, in the production world.
0: Yeah. Working on a film right now that I'm producing, we're working with a miniature yeah. um, model. And you know, there's not model makers out here and trying to do it. And I, I'm not trying to toot my horn, but just the creative thinking. I said, let's, uh, let's go to a hobby shop. Let's go to like a train store because I'm thinking everybody that has these train sets have these like mini towns. And, uh, we went there and that's where we got all the pieces. The people in the store were great, you know, showing us all so like, you know, and then the production designer made magic happen with that. And like I was able to look back at the satisfaction of, you know, I was able to bring the pieces together, which is a lot. So again, to the listeners out there that want to break into the industry, you know, think about also your strengths. I worked in in government for a long time as a project manager, which really it that's basically what an AD is on set. Herding cats, putting out fires, you know, making everything, everything is running. And for a long time, I was like, uh, I don't want AD. You know, I want to be creative. Yeah. But it's uh as you look for opportunities, you know, where can you make a good living at and, and sure. enjoy it?
1: There there is more than creative jobs in Zinza. Absolutely. There's always uh spots, people that can, you know, there are good with money, accounting, you know, logistics, you know, uh, people that are good with their hands and they, you know, they want to be an electrician. You know, there's, there's, there's always space for that in yeah. this industry. Yeah.
0: You know, a lot of the after, I call them the afterthought positions, even like makeup and wardrobe. There's, I know is- a lot, of, we're always struggling to find or scrambling. So what are, what are some of the big differences between producing a commercial as opposed to producing a film?
1: So, yeah, so I get, uh, that's, that's a really good question. I think that the biggest one is that when you're making a film especially if you're directing and you're producing, in the end is your money. You're spending your money on things. When you're doing a commercial, you're spending other people's money, right? And you have to be very careful as a producer, right? Because you're spending uh, sometimes big clients' money and that a lot of money, money that's unimaginable for some people uh, for like a one or two day shoot, right? So that's the big difference is that the money that you're spending it in the end is to create somebody else's content, not your own, right? It's easy these
0: days to get carried away with unlimited tape. Aches and not being efficient because you know it's digital and that I mean I came in way after film I never worked had a chance to work with film but I yeah. know from speaking you know with previous guests like when you had to work with film film was money aside from you know what you paid up front for an SD card you know it's not money so it's uh I find constraints spur creativity
1: yeah for sure uh I think if I were to compare something like that now in in my side of the industry is the ability to shoot up to like you know four 6, 8k some cameras the dumping of, of that data. You know, that takes time, you know, and sometimes that time means overtime for your DIT yeah. or your data manager, yeah. uh, the transcoding, okay. right? Spending time on that. So you know, there's a lot of things that come into my mind when I'm when I'm on a set and I'm looking at like, well, where is the money gonna be spent? What What's gonna take time, right? I say like the top digital film cameras today, they're, they're not cameras. They're supercomputers
0: yeah. that like record video and you know, 8K and it's so weird because you know, you're recording these higher resolution because you know, it's easy, you know, you can do more in post and all that. But even now the widely seen televisions and even movie screens don't even project it at that no. full resolution. Yeah. So Oh, okay. It's almost like how much of that is really worth it, you know, unless you're 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 really specific. Yeah. I,
1: it's mostly the post aspect. Right. And 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 I mean, it's like if you the, the way I like to see it is if you if you put it in front of a client and then you give them the option yeah. to shoot that high, they're going to say Yes. Yeah. Right. Because they think that the higher the higher the resolution, the better it's going to be. But in the end, you know, most of the of the content that I'm working on, more commercials, they're coming out in 1080p. Yeah. And, you
0: know, DPs want to shoot in the highest resolution possible. Yeah. Editors want to work in the highest resolution possible. Yeah. But then you as a producer, it's like, OK, 8K, you know, you're, you're managing time. It's like yeah. that could probably add, yeah. you, you know, to it. Plus, you know, you have to have a DIT on there that can manage that where, you know, if we just shot more in a traditional, even like a 4 yeah. even a 4K RAW is
1: more manageable. still big. You know, it depends on the camera you're shooting with, right? There's so many variables here Uh, and I've had so many nightmare experiences going into a shoot and then your DIT comes to you and it's like, hey, listen, it's going to take me eight hours to transcode all this footage. So many of them, uh, countless I would say. It's a little bit of an art and a science. Yeah.
0: Yeah? Great. We're going to talk more about it. We're going to get into really like the details of what a line producer does continuing that conversation. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. But before that, we would like to give a very special thank you to the M2 productions who are graciously hosting today for this recording. We'll be right back. back. Today, I am joined by line producer Antonio Martinez. Let's jump right into it. What specifically is a line producer and where do they fall within the, I guess we'll call it the hierarchy, among the uh, the plethora of different producers that are involved in film and TV?
1: Sure. Yeah. So a line producer is technically the last person above the line. A line producer is in charge of hiring crew. They're also in charge of day-to-day logistics. They're in charge of the budget, right? So I'm Basically, the last line, the filter between anybody that's crew, that's below the line. So gaffer, electricians, production assistants, art department, anybody that's above the line. So the executive producers, the director, um, I'm filtering information. I am running the day-to-day, making sure the production is running smoothly uh, before the shoot, right? And making sure that we're not spending more money than we need to. So the line
0: producer... The UPM and the AD are really the uh, the triumvirate that really runs the set, the show. Yeah. They're really the ones that without them, you're not going to be successful.
1: Sure, sure, sure. You know, in advertising, we usually don't have a UPM. You know, usually the line producer takes over the role of the UPM. So those responsibilities fall on the line producer's back, right? Uh, since, you know, most of the advertising jobs are one or two day shoots.
0: Can you talk about, you know, really thinking back to your film, film days, executive producer, Producers are, I think the uh, uh, conventional wisdom is, you know, they represent the money. Can you like just kind of talk down the line of the different producers yeah, and what their roles are? And Sure,
1: you know, in, in advertising, is a little bit different, right? And most of my experience in the production world as a producer is in advertising. But, you know, the EP that's uh, in film, that's a money guy, right? That's the one that's willing to put money into the film to get some return in the future. Uh, in advertising, an EP is more of like the person that either owns a production company that's fronting the money uh, for the production, or someone that has uh, that brought the job right. Someone that has a good connection with the client. For example, if you're doing a job for I don't know Directv, right? Maybe someone has the connection. You'll give the person the title of an extra producer, even if they're not putting any money down. Then you'll have uh, advertising. You have the producer, right? Uh, which is technically. My role also, right, I, I kind of just absorb everything that we don't have money for, the, the, the job of, of the crew that we don't need to hire, right? And the, the producer in advertising is also the person that's relaying the information to the client, right, like a filter. So if you have to have a meeting to talk about the locations you're filming at, the producer will be the one that's sending the document with the photos, right, and putting everything in writing to make sure it's concise and clear. Right, the producer is also the person that's relaying the information from the creative team on the uh, commercial side, right? The agency to the director, right? Filtering all that stuff. An associate producer in advertising can mean a couple different things. Usually, and this is a, quite a secret. Usually, it means it's a as a union ad, right? That's working a non union job, right? So because you can't call them uh, an ad on a call sheet because they're DGA. Right, you'll give him the title as a producer with a fake name. Right, so if you see on a commercial call sheet an associate producer, most of the time that will probably be that. Sometimes you also get someone that you want to give the title to to give the experience. Uh, that person can also function as an assistant to me, a producer. If they're an assistant, more of the role will be just AD ad undercover an assistant to the producer that you want to kind of bring in and kind of give the experience of producing so they can hopefully move on and like, you know, you can hire as a production manager or a coordinator or a supervisor or something along those lines. So
0: trying to bridge the gap Between the two film, you know, you have seven different production companies investing in a film and that. So usually each of those companies will have either an executive producer or a producer who's like on set, like representing their interest. So in, in the commercial industry, let's say Acme Cars, filming a commercial and you're shooting in the mountains of West Virginia, sure, yeah. that's on there. Would Acme vehicles have like, you know, a creative director or someone from their company who's kind of representing the client, like the money, their
1: money is being spent as like a producer type of role? Yeah, totally. So the client will usually, what they'll do is like, I guess the, this is a triumvirate here, right? You have on one side, you have the client In the middle, you have the agency. And on the other side, you have the production company that's executing the commercial, right? The agency, which is... both the creative force for the client, because most clients don't have an in-house creative department they will outsource that creative aspect to an agency. Uh, the agency will be in charge of the creative and the agency will also be in charge of the account managing, meaning um, who's relaying the information of day-to-day of the project to the client, right? So usually uh, on a commercial production, I'll have uh, a producer on the agency side. That's who. That's the person I'm relaying the information to. Most of the time though, that person's not a re- uh, production person. Person, right, it's not a person that has a production on set, uh, ex- set experience. So, uh, as a producer. You have to know how to explain things to people, right? And if it's someone that knows production in and out, it's easy. You can tell them, you can talk lingo, you you can say whatever, and they'll understand it. But if it's a person that doesn't know the ins and outs, and it's just someone that's like office-based... It's a money man. Yeah. It's a money person. Right. Then it's harder, you know, and you have to like really explain things like they're like 10, try to talk, you know, as opposed to production, talk about the money, right? So yeah, usually there'll be a person, uh, and that's the person I'm usually talking to, right? So we both are filters. I'm the filter... From my side of the team, the director, the EP, uh, the production designer, the location scout, all that information gets filtered through me, goes to another producer in the agency side. And then that producer should successfully pass that information on to the creative team. At the agency and eventually to the client. So there's a lot of levels here. And because of these levels, uh, there's a lot of prep time if you're lucky, right? And if there is not a lot of prep time, uh, then it's uh, all hands on deck, basically. Okay. So the agency,
0: I guess call him the middleman. Yeah. So the Company, the client, the one who wants to make a commercial, they'll hire X agency, yes. and then X agency either has somebody on staff who then um, hires the crew and develops everything, or they can contract out a production company, the staff, uh, or a combination, or a combination of the two. Yeah,
1: th- yeah there's a couple different things, and the and the classic method, right, is uh, the agency after the creative is approved for uh, Acme car company. You know, they, they'll submit a couple different scripts or ideas or themes, and then the client will say, you know what? We like the one with the car in West Virginia. I think that's the one we want to do. The production company can do two things. They can either choose to, if they have an in-house department to do the, the job, to do the shoot, uh, the production with their in-house. Uh, that's kind of more new. The classic way is for the agency to basically uh, do a bidding process with different production companies, right? So they'll reach out to uh, you know a production company one, and they'll say like, hey, listen, we have this job. Who can you recommend to direct this? Who do you have in your roster that is a good fit for a car commercial shot in the mountains of West Virginia? The EP's role here, the executive producer's role in this situation is to really understand who to present, right? Because you only have one shot at this. If you present the wrong director, you, you have no shot at winning the job, right? So a good EP knows who to present and how to present them to win the job. If production company one gets the job, then they usually contract me to handle the day to day to handle the budget, to make sure we don't go over budget, and to make sure that the information from the day-to-day is being filtered. So then the production company basically hires you as a 1099. Yes, basically. A freelance contractor, right? You know, depending on the production company, you'll have different ways of working. You know, some production companies, some really big ones that are working constantly in advertising, they have uh, production guidebooks that might be 40, 50 pages long on how to run the day-to-day. And most of that is paperwork, right? And a producer basically is the one that's Really understanding all of this and being able to, to not only make sure the job happens smoothly and the client is happy, but that all these guidelines are being followed for accounting and stuff like that. Specifically in
0: uh in union union areas, do uh, do IATSE or SAG unions do those guidelines also govern commercials?
1: Yes, so there is also commercials are union and that depends on a couple of things. Sometimes uh, the agency will be a union signatory, meaning that any commercial or job that the union the agency does has to go through a union. That's kind of rare here in Florida. You know, that's mostly like West Coast or like Northeast New York City, right. big union town. You know, Chicago is a big union town. Yes. So uh, so yeah, depending on who the client, where you're shooting, you might want to do the union. Uh, you know, sometimes um, the budget is not there to do union, especially here in Florida. You know the budget's not there, and LA is a bit different because depending on what you need for your job, you know there's some very specific uh, roles in the production that are all union only, right? If you're hiring someone to um, to drive, you know what a Russian arm is? You ever heard one of those? A Russian arm? No, no? Russian arm is is a uh, it's a very specialized type of equipment that you use when shooting car commercials or any chasing, it's like for any Fast and the Furious stuff, you would okay. use something like this. It's basically a, a Porsche Cayenne car with a massive crane on top, right? And that crane gets gets head attached to it and the camera, right? So this is how you shoot like a drive running footage of cars, right? You have a, the car you're filming on the road and then you have a a rush arm. The person that drives that vehicle has to be union. So if you're shooting something like that in in LA or Chicago, you need to run your job through a union. I mean, there's a couple different ways and it's always a a bit different where you are. Yeah. And with that, is is the car being driven or is it being pulled by a rig? A couple of different ways. If you're shooting with a Russian arm, you probably won't pull the car because then you lose the dynamic movement. Okay. You know, uh, if you don't have the budget for a Russian arm or for something similar, then you probably put the car in a process trailer and shoot either from uh, the base of the trailer or car to car. It's A couple of different ways you can make it happen.
0: You mentioned a second ago, uh, you know, some pre production and that obviously pre production for film and TV's is a very yeah.
1: very deliberate long process. Yeah. Is it similar to commercials or is it way different? So one of the things that drew me, uh, besides the fact that Miami's basically mostly commercials, one of the things I really enjoy about commercials is the prep time is much smaller, much shorter. You know, sometimes if you're lucky, you'll get a month. Right. if you're, And that's great. You know, most of the time, if you're shooting here in Miami, you'll get two weeks, maybe a week to prep, you know, and you're trying to pull, you know, pull a rabbit out a hat to make it happen. Uh, and I really enjoy the fact that you, as a commercial producer, I get to be involved on different jobs for sure amounts of time. Right in the film world, uh, your prep time, if you're a producer, <laughs> I mean, it could easily become a year you know, depending on how big the film is, right? And you could be linked up with this project for a long time and that can get pretty tiring, right? So I do like the freedom of like, you know, jumping on jobs, work for three weeks, then maybe take a week off and then jump to another one for another three weeks, right? That's the the flexibility. Depending on the client or depending on the complexity of the commercial you're filming, the prep time can be different, right? Depending on who the client is. If it's a big client that has a lot of layers of like marketing and approvals and legal, right? You need that time built in for stuff to get approved. Uh, and I wanna talk about approvals. I'm talking about like the location, right? Where you're filming, the, the actors right? that you you're hiring for this the um, if you're shooting in a studio the set design who's who, you know in, in the end like I said before it, you're filming with other people's money right and because of other people's money someone has to say okay I like it right it's, it's not my decision to say oh this is good we can film with this right so yeah the process is much more straightforward in advertising because you don't have a lot of time to prep and you also don't have a lot of time to shoot so we uh we're recording this the uh day before the Super Bowl uh, you know
0: obviously to a lot of people the commercials are almost most if not more enjoyable than the game are commercials i know I know money-wise, what is spent, you know, for airtime is huge. Yeah. Someone's making a commercial for a Super Bowl. Is that just on a whole nother level than like a regular commercial production? Is that like everyone's dream to
1: work yeah. on a Super Bowl commercial? Oh, yeah, totally. I think that's a uh, like that's like a badge of honor, right? That's something you will were, if you're uh, a director or a commercial director or a production designer and you get to work on one of those, that's something that you'll never, never forget. Uh, and yes, you know, I think it goes with the territory, right? You're spending that money right? You're, you're spending the money f- to have that commercial on the air, right? So you might as well go big or go home, right? So the budgets can get pretty insane. If you don't talk numbers and stuff like that, you, you could you could look at like so some of those commercials could go up to like a million, million and a half.
0: Well, and, and I haven't checked. I think last time I checked, it was like two and a half million for 30 seconds in the, in the first quarter for prime time. I mean, it's going to be if
1: five, if not now, soon. And that's just to buy the airtime. Exactly. I think that the rule of thumb, not specifically for the Super Bowl, but like for advertising itself, commercials that go on the air, I don't know if it applies anymore because you know there's so much social media stuff. But like something was going to go on TV, the budget of the shoot should be around ten to fifteen percent of what you're spending on the on the media buy, like on the airtime. Right? That's the general uh, rule of thumb. Right. But when it comes to the Super Bowl, because you you know I haven't been lucky enough to work one of those yet. But uh, if you if you're spending that money, you really want to have the wow factor, right? When we talk about commercials, the
0: initial thought you know gravitational television. But nowadays with mixed media, you know YouTube, Vimeo. Instagram, TikTok, and all that. Is it a different approach filming a commercial that you know is strictly going to be on TV as opposed to something that's going to be across different mediums?
1: Yeah, good question, actually. Uh, so yes, uh, I think the big, the big difference right now is the budget, right? So when this social media thing started a few years back, maybe like a decade now, clients and big uh, brands were a bit hesitant to spend money on, on stuff like this. Um, so the budgets were very minimal, very, very minimal right now. It's getting more to the sense that, okay, you know, if we put some money here, maybe we can do something nice. So there's still like, there's so much, so many platforms now, right. That if you're doing, you could end up doing, I mean, it's happened to me uh, as a producer, you end up doing like A commercial strictly for Instagram, right? Strictly for Instagram. Obviously, the budget for that is going to be much smaller or something that's going to be on TV. The the type of talent contracts are you talking about? You know, how much is going to cost an actor to be on an Instagram commercial as opposed to a TV commercial, right? It's different. So budgets are very variable when it comes to social media stuff. I think uh, big brands are finally getting the hint like, hey, listen, social media is kind of like the way it's going to be. But the good thing with this is because um, there's so many clients are willing to spend money. Uh, on their own content Be be it a commercial or something that's getting really uh, a lot of uh, buzz for the past two years is branded content, right? Everybody wants to have their own content be like documentary style or or like kind of like a pat in the back or like look how great we're doing, right? Uh, The good thing about this is because there's so many more clients and brands shooting, there's more opportunities for people to start working on stuff like this.
0: And we've talked about that on previous episodes that sometimes, you know, film students get blinders on, you know, and they're just like, you know, I want to work in film. I want Working film or or television, not really
1: seeing how much broader content creation as a whole is, is exploding. And it's easy to uh, see this content, you know, it's, it's on social media, it's on, it's on Facebook. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, for anybody listening out there, like it's, uh, there's so much being, sh- so much stuff being shot right now that it's easier to get your foot in the door now than it was 10 years ago.
0: And, uh, just switching gears a little bit. Um, you know, there's always, you know, well-known directors, well-known cinematographers, well-known actors that people can read and learn about producers, you know, a little bit of an own an- <laughs> their own animal. Yeah. Uh, we were talking a little bit about like shows like the offer, you know, about like sure. Robert Evans and there's, there's big name producer that people know, but are there any notable or not notable, like commercial producers that are worth like looking into like good biographies or any books,
1: you know, anyone you could think of? There's a lot of directors out there that make their own features, but they also do commercials, right? There's a lot of directors out there. Aaron Morris, the commentarian, very famous documentarian. He makes his money shooting commercials. A lot of these directors will do their passion projects, with the money they make by shooting commercials. Because there is a lot of money for directors and for producers and commercials. You know, uh, the producer role uh, is kind of the unsung hero. I think we kind of, I brought that up a little bit earlier, with the silent hero, right? We never really get recognized because they don't need us unless something is on fire, right? If everything's smooth and everything's going great, you know, nobody recognizes us. As I say, if nobody knows who you are, you've, you've done your job. I think that's exactly the way I would put it. The ability to make money for directors in at the advertising world has really facilitated some of these guys to be able to, uh, to do their own passion projects. Yeah.
0: In regards to education, you know, we talked about this before, you know, even film schools focus on film making and some of them should start Implementing more, making commercials, making broader content into their curriculums? Sure.
1: I think, like, looking back now, after doing this for so long, I would say that, you know, not everybody's living in LA. Not everybody's living in New York City where they're shooting most of the TV and, and, and film. Uh, stuff, right? So you kind of have to play to the strengths and to what's available in the city that you live in. Miami it's mostly advertising. So if you want to get your foot in the door, look for what is shooting here. You know, and, and this industry is hard to get into, but once you're in and you're doing a good job, it's hard to get out. Whether it's a commercial, a TikTok video,
0: or that, it's a story. You know, you're telling a story. And it's actually, I think, even harder to tell a story in 30 seconds or 60 seconds than it is having length. So if you're, what we said about, you know, people want to be a director, you if you want to be a creative, look at it, look into writing
1: and creating commercials. There's a lot of people on the agency side that are writing all these all these scripts that, that come to the production company to shoot. And a lot of these guys are, you know, creatives. It's a little known fact that a lot of these creatives from agency, they're really passionate about filmmaking. They're really passionate about television right so a lot of these people really know the industry from the theory side right and they're creating stuff for you to shoot and like you said like shooting a story in 30 seconds and now like 15 and 10 it's very tough to make it great so i think that um there's so many opportunities out there it's just getting your foot in the door knowing that you know if you want to be a creative this is there's also this possibility not everything is film you know and and, and if you're the kind of person like i was saying like specifically me that doesn't want to be stuck doing something for six seven eight nine Nine, 10 months a year this is something much more flexible great so speaking of you
0: we're going to take another quick break and when we come back we're going to get more into what your days are like What uh, what's a day in the life of Antonio but before that we would like to thank two of our partners that helped make this podcast possible Cinevideotech who's been a mainstay of the film industry since 1968 providing equipment support and training and ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment. This is Howard Brand. You're listening to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. We'll be right back. And we are back with Antonio Martinez. So, Antonio, what does a typical day look like for you in all three stages? What's pre-production like? Then let's talk about what production is like. And then what, if any,
1: role you have in, in post-production. Okay. So as a producer, right, land producer on a, on a commercial, on a uh, on a day-to-day, Right, Uh, my job starts day zero. Usually, right. Uh, I'm usually being asked to like either help bid the job, like you know, I have all the information in my head of how things, what things cost. So I usually help with the bidding process. If I don't, I usually just get a budget. I'm like, hey, you're hired. Here's how much money we have. Don't spend that all. The first part of production uh, for me is trying to figure out if we need a location or we're shooting at a studio. If we need a location, I'll get in touch with a location scout, talk to the director to make sure we're on the same page, and start the scouting process. Right, Uh, most. Most of the time, the scouts don't spend a lot of time scouting. They do have a lot of things in their files, right, that they can share with us. After we've um, selected a location, uh, we'll start the scouting process with the director, right? Some of these directors don't live in the city. They're coming from somewhere else or they've never seen this location before. So we'll go in a director scout. Right, This is where the director looks at a couple different locations, see what he likes. So if we're shooting an example, uh, I don't know, uh, one of the beaches here, right? The director will, will come with us. Uh, usually myself, the uh, scout and the director will start looking at the locations and kind of narrowing down which beach works, works the best. At the same time, we're also working on the casting process, right? If we have to do a big casting, then I'm also supervising the casting. The director is also involved in the casting process because it is his vision in the end, even though it's uh, advertising, the director is involved with his vision. It's multiple things happening at the same time. Those are the two big ones. I'm also, uh, behind the scenes, I'm crewing up, right? I'm hiring people we need, the director of photography, camera operators, right? The grip and electric department, the art department, right? Once you have all those initial steps solid, you have them all all kind of like either moving or 100% locked in, then you'll go into the art department aspect of it, right? If there's some sort of build, right? A department needs to create a city on the beach, then it's going to be more of a creative process. It's going to be longer. Still has to be approvals, right? It's not this person's idea that gets approved. It's their idea that gets sent to the director. The director gives feed- feedback back on it and they collaborate together to then when they're happy with it, they'll will submit uh, art locations and talent to the agency for approval. And then eventually falls into the client where the client approves everything and we're ready to shoot, right? This is a very like concise explanation of what my uh, pre-production year looked like. You know, there's a lot of fires usually you're putting out. There's some jobs that might be a little more tricky where you have to find something very specific, you know, and you're actually spending time on the ground looking for something. It could be an actor. It could be a location. It could be that um, we need to, uh, I mean, there's so many great ones. Putting a We did this job once where we had to put a mechanical bull on top of a parking lot uh, in downtown Miami and have a person ride it. So the logistics of like, okay, where do I find one of these and how do I get it to the top of the parking lot, right? So stuff like that. And as, for me, that's usually the fun part, right? The rest of the stuff at this point, uh, it's kind of like autopilot, right? But they're the really like, okay, how do we solve this problem? How do we make, yeah. How do we make this happen? Right. So that's usually my pre-production process in a very concise manner. At the same time, a producer is a really good people person, right? You have to, because you're dealing with multiple egos. Sometimes you're dealing with the director and the agency and the client. So you have to be able to like navigate that, you know, kind of like play a little bit of psychology. I like to say it. So that's important. And it all goes along it would, during the pre-production as during the production itself. I think if it's uh an easy commercial, is usually my my Right. Easiest day. The actual solving part. Right? Because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the there same same to way. make sure right. that everything uh, gets to that point, and then the director will take over and he'll his thing and the crew will do his thing and i'm just basically just sitting back um and watching but also relaying information from the client so usually a producer in advertising is sitting down with uh we call them the grown-ups the people that that are putting the money down on this right and you know the director might want to shoot something one way the client might say like oh why do you shoot it this way right so it's my role to get that information from the client to the director at the same time making sure that it's some sort of like i like to put it this way a lot of people that go to set from the client side Uh, they're office people. And being on set is their uh, field day, field trip, right? So you want to make sure that the experience for them, you know, it's great, stress-free. And a lot of these people that are giving comments, some people are fantastic in the sense that they know film and they know the process, but other people don't, right? So there's a lot of comments that come from the client, especially when you're filming, like, hey, what if we uh, put the camera here? Why is there lighting this way? And, you know, you're hiring professionals to do this, right? So you have to have some sort of trust. So a lot of my job on the day of, uh, if I'm not putting out fires, is to relay information from the people with the money to the people doing the creative work and make sure That information is properly interpreted by both sides.
0: You said a couple things that really jump out to me when you said, you know, once you actually start production, that could be your easiest day. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the mantra, it's the uh, the seven P's or. For the purpose of this podcast, the six Ps, you know, prior, proper planning, prevent poor performance. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a planner at heart, so, you know, you can never over plan. And other thing, going back to when you were talking about crewing up, uh, you know, you hire a GP, then do you let department heads kind of give you their wish list of who yeah. they want? And you're like, no, we can't afford this guy, you know, this and that. Or a lot of them like, hey, you hire me. Part of my deal is you hire
1: my crew. Yeah, it, it can go different ways. You know, obviously you want to bring... uh. If you're hiring a DP, you want to kind of like bring the people that he wants, so it's an easier working experience. Uh, sometimes it might happen; the people that he wants are not available; they're booked in something else, and then you have to like kind of like find someone that either he's worked with and he knows, or someone that comes recommended. You know, this business is pretty word of mouth. I think there are some uh, some websites out there for where you can find crew and stuff, Production Hub and Stage Thirty Two. Yeah, there's a couple different ones, and I have to say these are not endorsements. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. Most of the of the hiring happens through word of mouth. Right. Still, you know, it's one of the few industries where the hiring process is, is just, hey, who do you know that can help me do this? Uh, a lot of my jobs are in um, uh, not very well-burst production cities, right? So then it's even harder. Finding good crew, right. right? Then you really have to knock on a lot of doors to find the right person, and usually that does happen in the pre-production process. Yeah.
0: Then it goes back to what you said about being diplomatic, where you have to go back to the agency and say, "Look, here's here's the fact: where we are, the quality of crew is not available, yeah. so we have to fly in crew from this. is going to cost a little more, but you're going to get this return
1: on the back end as yeah. opposed to possibly being crappy and having to reshoot. Yeah. I mean, it's happened so many times. You know, you shooting in a city. Ah, uh, I mean, I'll give you a good example uh chicago is a big union town big big union town and uh for any other producers out there listening and if you were thinking of shooting in chicago non-union be aware that most of the good crew, I wanna say 95% of the good crew are union and they really won't work in an union spot. The first time I shot there, we were in a tech scout, right? Cause that's, you, you do a tech scout before the shoot is where all the crew goes in and just kind of, you, you talk over what you're doing. Everybody gets on the same page. So when you go shooting, you're not trying to figure out the shots the day of. So we're the tech scout, night scout, hire all non-union crew, budget reasons. And uh, our gaffer shows up and he's had a few drinks. He's, he definitely reeks, reeks of beer. So it's that kind of setting like where it, you have to know the strengths of the city and the weaknesses of the city where you're shooting at uh, to avoid a, an experience like this, right? Because you definitely don't want to go on a textile with someone that's having a few drinks before.
0: I, I thought that story was going in a different direction because we, we were just talking about the offer and oh. the godfather, you know, we were doing a night <laughs> shoot and three large men, you know, show up and <laughs> come up to us and be like, what are you guys doing? No, not that bad. No, not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> and, and at least not anymore. Yeah. No. <laughs> Maybe, maybe 30 years ago. Yes. Yeah. Safety, Safety onset. Yes. Something that that's in the news a lot recently I mean safety is always paramount no matter what you're showing and some commercials especially like car commercials yeah. and that get pretty aggressive film sets usually you know the AD has the overall safety and that has that become more of a focus recently in commercials you know has it been
1: something that taken extra care there's so many horror stories right and the last thing you want as a producer is to be the one the other horror story the new one right that's the last thing you want as a producer so I think any good producer uh, in their mind, they're always thinking safety, you know? And then there are some moments where, you know, I don't feel comfortable, you know, but it's part of the shot and, you know, I have to let the AD take the reins and make sure that everything's safe. And um, last month I shot with a flamethrower for a commercial and the, um, the safety behind that, you know, it's like the flamethrower spitting out kerosene that's on fire, Right and doesn't have a gauge or how far away it can go. Right, so you, you're trying to like get the shot, but also be uh, understanding that there is some some safety that needs to be applied. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole twelve part series on the uh, the rust shooting yeah.
0: and what went wrong and and all like it's unfortunately from what it sounded like it is just a textbook example of massive, colossal failure by. Everybody on that set. Yeah, totally. I agree with you. Aside from the obvious big differences on that, what are some of the other differences between would you say filming, you know, films and TV and, and commercials from you know, obviously the time frame is shorter, the end result yeah. is shorter, yeah. crews are probably smaller camera setups but you know similarities i think are obvious but what are some of the big differences that may not be so apparent to the naked eye sure
1: so i guess the i think the big one that's that comes to mind is that when you're you're doing a film uh a big feature uh you know the director has a lot of say you know basically he's the uh unless it's a budget thing and like you really you know you can't spend the extra five million on this thing then there's like a stop but Uh, In advertising, because like I said before, you're spending on people's money, right? The director can say one thing, but in the end, if the person whose money it is doesn't want it, you know, you kind of have to g- roll with that. You know, you have to adjust your, what you're shooting or what you're going to shoot for that. So I think that's a big one. And, you know, this is always a dance, right? The, the, the director and the producer with the agency and the client, you have to come to this like happy medium where everybody likes what you're doing. Directors are creatives. They want to push the boundaries. They want to make something really interesting. But some brands don't want that, right? Because you have to be cookie cutter to kind of apply to to be able to sell to everybody. I think the big one is trying to work the, the creative aspect into something that's going to be shot for the purpose of like selling something, right? And it has to, it can't be too edgy. It can be too forward, you know, it has to, but still has to be creative. Or it depends if that's what... Oh yeah. If the, cli- if the, if the client is willing to to do something really creative, which is very rare, you know, there's there's not many brands out there that are willing to to push the limit, to push the boundaries. It's something that, that
0: I just thought of, you know, movies, obviously, you know, the MPAA and things like that. Is there, you know, I would guess FCC guidelines, or there, you know, are those the guidelines that you follow as far as what governs what you can and can't do in a commercial?
1: Yes and no, right? You you know, there's obviously like a common sense aspect to it, right? You you definitely can't do anything that's going to like violate the FCC guidelines. I think that an interesting regulation for television commercials is I think this was started in the '90s or maybe late '80s. The volume, right? When you're doing the post aspect on a commercial. There's specific guidelines to how loud commercials, television commercials can be, right? And this, I think this was created in the 90s, right? So there's specific rules you have to follow when you're doing the post work. I'm not huge into like sound engineering and stuff like that, but I do know like when you're doing the post work, uh, there's specific way of like, hey, it can only be to this level to avoid any sort of light violation for the FCC. The last thing you want is when you're changing the channel, all of a sudden you get a, like a commercial and it's like blasting, right? So the FCC set up these rules... I believe it's FCC, set up these rules to avoid having that issue, which does not apply to social media commercials, right? So if you might have noticed that sometimes you're on your phone watching something, you get an Instagram spot, and all of a sudden the volume is all the way up. It's because there's no regulation for that yet. No, I was gonna say,
0: like, if you weren't watching a TV show on that and commercials blasting or the yeah. commercials too low, and so then,
1: you know, you've shot the commercial. Yeah, you got it, you got uh, it in the can. So you're yeah. moving into post. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of things you can do here. Like, um, depending on the kind of job, uh, I might also take care of the post-production, you know? And to be honest, that's my least favorite part. You know, you might think that the production and the shoot is difficult. Oh boy, posts can get really tough because you're dealing with people's interpretation of things, right? When you're shooting something and you're looking at it and you're like the whole circus that is production on set, people get excited and they look at things and they're like, oh, I loved how this shoots. You know, I love this shot. I love how this looks. But when you it together then you're finally seeing the product right and sometimes it's hard to like uh, really take what people have in their minds out after they see the cut so you might get some you might get uh clients or, or brands that when they see the first cut, they're like, wait, this is not what I remember seeing on on the set, right? So you have to deal with a lot of that. And and that's why post is not my favorite. But if you're doing post, you know, you're going through like the rough cuts first, right? You'll send, you work on a rough cut to send to the agency first, because everything goes to the agency before seeing by the client. The agency has to give it a, an like approval, right? When it's good to go, right? If the agency says like, Hey, I love it. Never happens. You know, you always have to come back with changes and edits and and then after it's finally approved, goes to the client. And then uh client will come with comments as well. And sometimes those comments from the client can be a lot, right? Uh, after you locked in, your rough cut. After you've done that for advertising, it goes into color correction, mixing and mastering. And if there's any sort of like closed captioning work you have to do, do it as well. Towards the end, when every, all those aspects are done, you finalize the commercial, you put it all together, the color correction, the mix, and you have your final spot. But on the same side, I'm also doing the wrap work for the spot, right? I'm also doing the uh, the accounting work to send to the accounting office to make sure I didn't spend, I spent the money that I had and not more and getting all the paperwork, make sure the crew is getting paid, make sure that all the talent contracts are signed, you know, now it's digital. So it's much easier. I just put it on a Dropbox uh, or some sort of like drive or whatever. And I just kind of like organize it that way. Um, some clients still prefer uh, to do it all paperwork. So you have to spend time printing. If you're doing the post and the wrap, you're kind of doing both things the same. Time and it can get pretty exhausting, especially uh, after you spend a few weeks working really hard to get one day or two day shoot.
0: And I think you mentioned earlier, either during Warner Bros., that you've done some work with the government in post. You mentioned colors and all that. Did you have to follow like 508 guidelines with accessibility and, yeah, and things in yeah, that? Yeah, the, I mean, that's another factor yeah, specific of to government.
1: Yeah, government commercials, you know, always have to have closed captioning. That's, that's mandatory for government spots. So that's like a big one. I mean, haven't known one in a while, but that one's st- always sticks with me. And then there's also like specific wording that you have to use you know uh, with spots like that there's so much legal that goes into it. The same with like uh, my my least favorite, I would say it's like pharma spots, you know, big pharma. Uh, but they shoot a lot and they have big budgets, right? And if, you, uh, if you're if you shooting a pharma spot, there's zero creative flexibility, right? Because it's been through so many layers mm-hmm. of lawyers and legal and, and, and client sign-offs that when you're shooting, you're basically shooting what's on the script. There's no deviation. The director can't get creative. Pharma commercials are just two things about them that just cracked me up. One, where it's like, ask
0: your doctor if this is right for you. I'm like, usually it's the other way around. Usually the doctor is the one who thinks what well, you should take. And then when they go through all the side effects, why would anybody take any of these?
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm not anti-drug and all, but just some of them, it's like- You know, it's, it's, it's part of the legal aspect yeah. of shooting the farmer commercial. You have to include yeah. that stuff. You know, how you have to put all these all these guidelines. If you watch a farmer commercial, uh, you'll notice that the live action stuff, it's intercut with uh, like a banner or some sort of like graphic. Yeah. There's a law. There's a specific amount of time you have to have those banners on the commercial for. And that's mandated by the regular, I forgot which office, maybe it's the FDA that regulates how long you have to have those banners with the information on for. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Depending on the length of the commercial.
0: As bad as pharma TV commercials are print ads, you got one page about the product and the, the next page is all the side effect that could go wrong. So what, what would you say is your like, your official closeout? Like what tells you like, okay, I am done with this job on to the next one.
1: I I think as a producer, you can have never done, (laughs) you know, it can come back to you years down the line. I think when you finally submit your final actual, right? Because that's my, the the final budget I'm submitting with my expenses, everything listed, you know, by credit card, by check, by cash. You know, I can spend more time doing a wrap than doing a prep work because there's so much paperwork and so so much money you have to track down. Uh, When I finally submit that actual work, to whoever the production company that hired me and they look at like okay you know you spent less or you spent it on or if you know luckily hasn't happened to me many times that you know you spend more but um, but yeah that, that's that's technically the final like hey I'm signing off you know but years on the line you might get a question like hey we need to renew the talent contracts from that commercial you shot in Mexico seven years ago and then you have to go through your digital files trying to find the contract try to find who the talent was get in touch with them right so it, as a producer you're link with the commercial with the project doesn't really end you know, there's always going to be something that might come down the line. You mentioned Mexico. Um, so you filmed in other countries. Yes, yes. That
0: must introduce a whole nother layer of, of issues. Monster.
1: Every country has their own different different way of production. You know, every different state really also. Right. Uh, but yeah, every, every, there's different specific ways things ran. I shot in Colombia and South America last year. And, you know, the overtime rules are different than in the States. So you end up shooting 20, 21 hour days because, you know, it's more accessible. And, you know, it's obviously not healthy. But, you know, when you have a spot that has a lot of shots and you're doing like a lot of company moves, you know, when you're moving from location to location, then you, you kind of like you roll the punches, right? Same thing in Mexico. There's specific way things work. And I have so many great stories of shooting in Mexico. And, you know, I think my favorite one is um, having to keep in mind that you might have to have some, uh, some money to give to the cops in case they show up in your shot and they don't want to get out, right? So you might be shooting in Mexico City and all of a sudden there's a cop in the background. And you're like, wait, what is this cop doing here? You go talk to him, he's like, no, I'm not moving, you know, and it's a city cop. And you're like, okay, well, what what do you need to move? uh, $40, you know? So then you start, you know, it's, it's part of the, it's part of like the monster of shooting somewhere else. Yeah.
0: I'm not going to say that that probably happens in the U.S. too, oh, but okay. I'm not going to say that it definitely doesn't happen in the U.S. too. So, so you've shot in, you've shot in Mexico, you've shot in yeah. Colombia.
1: Yeah. I, I shot uh, in a lot of Latin American countries. i shot in Canada, which if you were to ask me best place to shoot in the world, Vancouver. Oh yeah. Hands down. Uh, not only that, the crews are more, I think par if not better than LA, you know, the, the professionals in Vancouver know their stuff. The casting is fantastic. Locations are great. The process of shooting Vancouver is fantastic. So I would say that I've also done some pre-production work for like Europe and stuff. So, you know, like I said, every country's own little different microcosmos of production. Yeah.
0: Is Vancouver still a
1: little cheaper to shoot in than LA or is it yeah. kind of like evened out? No, no, it's still a little bit cheaper than shooting in LA. Uh, you know, obviously like you don't have the luxury of like year long summer, like in LA, but if you're there shooting the summer in Vancouver, uh, it's quite breathtaking.
0: Uh, and you mentioned Vancouver and you said you've done, you've done some pre-production work in, in Europe, uh, Victoria, there is basically feels like you're it's uh, not far oh, it's, yeah, yeah okay. little island off okay. of Vancouver cool. um so yeah just so much interesting stuff you know talk about the the regulations things oh, yeah. things that you would never think about un- yeah, unless you're in there
1: a, and as a producer as a producer you kind of have to know this stuff right you have to you have to understand where you're shooting you have to understand the restrictions uh big one in Mexico Mexico has a big uh policy of not letting electronics come into the country right? Because people think that you're going to resell them, right? And you can mark them up like crazy Mexico, right? If you have the time, you go through the illegal and you get all this sign ups from the Mexican uh, customs to to get all this gear in. But if you, you know, have to shoot in three days and you just have to go there, you might run the risk of the Mexican government stopping you on the board and saying like, hey, why is that Alexa camera coming in here? Are you trying to resell it? And you might say, oh, no, I'm here to shoot. And they're like, you, you can't do that. So it, it's, it has happened when I'm bringing some gear into Mexico with very little lead time. I You get caught by by customs, and then you have to pay. I mean, I think I want to say it's like twenty percent of the value of the of what you're bringing in. So if you're lucky enough to get caught with like a really expensive lens or like a cam Alexa body in there, you could be in trouble.
0: Better than a night in a foreign prison.
1: (laughs) Totally. We're going to take one more break
0: and uh, we'll be back to finish up this fascinating, interesting conversation. To our listeners, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating and then head over to our online store at paradoxicalfilms.com forward slash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Last of all, be sure to also follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We'll be right back. I'm Howard Brand, and we are talking today with line producer Antonio Martinez. Start to talk about some of your adventures, we'll call them. In Mexico, uh, we talked about Canada. What are some of your most memorable experiences?
1: This is a good one. So my favorite, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to, I've done so many, so many great ones that stick to my mind. But my favorite one, my favorite experience, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was lucky enough to shoot uh, with Academy Award winning uh, Chloe, Chloe Zhao, who won the Academy Award for Nomadland, uh, is an interview. Uh, it's a five-minute interview. Uh, the final cut is five minutes. But we got to interview her for about three and a half hours on the process of filmmaking. You know, her favorite movies, TV shows. And as a film student, a film buff, film nerd, hearing someone that recognize someone that's, you know, won an Academy Award, speak about the filmmaking process and how it works for her, you know, in, in a very intimate setting was, was something that I'll never forget. You know, some of, some of her pet peeves and the things that she does before watching movies, uh, how big of a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer she is, you know? Someone that won an Academy Award is a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
0: She's a very interesting case study. Like, I don't think there's been any other director whose first two movies are so vastly different ends of the spectrum. I mean, No Man Land, a very real, mm, no CGI, you know, you know, traditional movie, and then, you know, The
1: Eternals, the complete opposite. So it's fun when we interviewed her for this uh, campaign, she was an hour and a half late because she was still in IMAX studio editing the film, which was supposed to release a week later, right? She was still in the editing process for this film. And she was, I'm so sorry, I haven't slept in four days. But and I understand, you know, it's part of the process. And just being able to hear her speak about her own personal experience with filmmaking was something magnificent. Uh, at the same campaign also, let uh, me hear Judd Apatow speak last last October, oh, wow. speak about uh, filmmaking and his process. And some of the stuff he said, you know, really stuck with me. And, you know, everybody, directors have this, especially the big ones, you know, the ones that have made a lot of features and, and know the ins and outs of Hollywood. They have all these really specific ways of looking at things. And Judd was one of those and hearing him speak about it, oh man, I mean, for two and a half hours of just, and then we cut that into a five minute interview, you know, so a lot of meat, you know, it's it's not in there. So just having the privilege, that was amazing. I've also had so many fun experiences shooting different cities. Uh, I got to shoot at the Indy 500 last year. Yeah, And that's something that I, you know, I'm not a big car guy. I was not expecting like to be into it, but man, I got really into it. Were you like right down at track level? The day before, so it's a whole event, right? And I didn't know about this. It's like a a whole week long event. It's also the biggest sport, one day sporting event by attendance in the world, right? So they receive around 300,000 spectators at the track to watch this. Nothing compares to this, right? And I didn't know this. It's a whole week event. You know, they have musicians and they have all these other uh events on the track the day of the of the events of the race we you know there's specific people that can be track side because those cars are going really fast but i got to be uh on the track the day before when they were doing some sort of competition of, of on pit crews, and i got to hear the cars like right next to them yeah. Roam, you know that's and, cool and you don't get a sense of how like fast they're really going until, until you're right
0: there and i mean until, you know, i grew up in northern new jersey you know, back. The, the Meadowlands, I still call it the Meadowlands, the, uh, the racetrack there, you know, we'd go through horse races and that. And uh, for me, I always love, you could get right down to the um the railing, you know, when the horses go by like at full speed, it's it's magnificent. I love to get onto an NFL sideline and just see like how really fast it moves. So Indy five hundred,
1: what what other good ones have you done? Oh man, um, let's see. So I have so many interesting stories from this. Uh, I did a lot of spots for a specific. I won't I won't say the brand name. Uh, but a specific Land American Cell Phone Company Telecommunications. Right, their spots are usually. Uh, out of the box. Usually they're willing to to push the um, the limits of advertising. The first time I work with them and uh, it's kind of like a rated R story, but I'll bring it up to PG-13. So the first time I work with them, their casting is really intense. They need like people with tattoos and like crazy haircuts, you know, not the cookie cutter, you know, uh, usual casting you see in American advertising. They're more willing to push the boundary. So we did this massive casting for 45 actors, you know, and they had tattoos and piercings and spiky hair and They had to have attitude. Everything's done, we're ready to shoot. It's Friday and we're having a pre-production meeting, which is standard commercials, you know? It's like the the last meeting before you shoot, so everybody's on the same page and there's no questions. And we had the meeting uh, four o'clock on a Friday to shoot on Monday. Get a call that same day at 8 p.m. And it's the EP and he's like, hey, listen, we messed up, like what happened? We don't have a, a redhead with tattoos. We need to have a redhead with tattoos. And I'm like, well, it's 8 p.m. on a Friday. We shoot a Monday. I mean, I don't know what I can do. We already have 45 actors. Can we just get a wig? No, no, no. It's all good, actually. The client found a redhead with tattoos. And we have the website from the modeling agency. And I'm like, okay, send it to me. I'll get a call. It's 8 p.m., but let's see if I can book this person. Get the email, check the website. And you know, you work in Miami long enough, you know all the agencies, right? All the agencies. I get the, the website and I look at it. I'm like, wait a second. I'm, I don't know this agency. And usually when you're talking model websites, it's usually light colors, like light blues and whites. You know, it has to be friendly. This one's like dark background, black, uh, silver font. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, I don't know this. Wait a second. What is this place? I'm looking, scrolling down. I'm like, located in Vegas Nevada. I don't think this is a talent agency at all. So I tell my EP, I'm like, hey, listen, I think this is a, an escort website in Las Vegas. Well, I don't care. The client wants that redhead with tattoos. Okay, if you're cool with it, I'll make the call. So I have to spend 15 minutes on the line with uh, <laughs> the booking manager trying to explain that I needed to book one of the escorts for a commercial that was being shot in Miami. And obviously, it was very unorthodox kind of question for this, for this kind of business. So she didn't get it. I had to really explain and she thought I was trying to talk in code. And I was, I was trying to be very blunt. Like, listen, we need this person. To shoot a commercial that would make such a great little short film. I'm gonna.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I may steal that from you.
1: The best thing about this is that we know we ended up booking her, and out of the 45 models and actors that we had, she was the nicest. She was such a down-to-earth person. You know, obviously, I never had that kind of interaction before, but like it was so like what a breath of fresh air.
0: You know, <laughs> it's really interesting. That's such a great story. Everybody takes a different route to get to where they are. You know, you came probably about as traditional as a can. You know, film, TV, commercial. You've given some advice. Already on, on the pod that we appreciate. Do you have any other advice for somebody who may just want to get right into commercial work?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, like I said before, I don't think you go into film school thinking like, oh, you know, I want to do commercials. You know, that's not that's what happens. It's kind of like where you are, what city you're in, what opportunities there are. But in the end, the process on set is the same. You know, if you're in a movie or a TV show, is Pretty similar, you know, with what the day-to-day of your job is going to be. I would say to all the young listeners out there that still are trying to figure out what they're trying to to do in this industry, do not discount a commercial because it's a commercial. You know, in the end, it's going to be experience, especially if you're first starting. It's going to be experience that you can apply to film and to TV. And yeah, just don't discount it. Because, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of like young film students and you tell them like, oh, you working at, you working in the commercial industry? I don't want to do that. I want to do movies. So, like, yeah, okay, well, you know, there you can do that. That you'll get there, but being on a set is being on a set. And that experience applies to films, commercials, and television, mm-hmm. right? That's my sage advice. And I would also give sage advice that uh, do what you can to earn a living you know, and all that. Making
0: movies is fun. Making little short films, they're great. If you put your own money into it and put it on YouTube, good on you. But to be able to work and earn money- Doing something that's uh, that's the prize.
1: Yeah, it's, it's lucky, you know. Especially people that get to, like I said before, you know, once you're into this industry, once you have your foot in, and you're you love what you do, and you're good at what, what you do, it's hard to get out, you know. And that's why this industry is such such a word of mouth industry, right? Because if uh, I'm looking for a PA, right, and, and I know I have a friend that's like responsible and he's like quick and he's, you know, like he understands, uh, instructions. I'll offer him a job because I know he's going to do a good job. Right. And that's kind of how it works. You know, it's all word of mouth. So if anybody has an opportunity to like be on a set, uh, go for it, do it. You know, especially if you haven't been in a professional set before, I see this a lot with younger PAs, right. Especially the ones that are just starting, right. The, they come to set and they're, you know, they have like this deer in the headlights kind of look like, oh my God, what am I doing? What do you need to do? As a PA, you always want to look like you're busy, right? Like you're doing stuff. So number one, look for trash on the ground. Just scope around for trash. Pick it up, you know? Check the coolers to make sure there's ice. Make sure there's water in there. Because the last thing you want is like a thirsty grip that's been carrying combo stands for four hours. You know, dying of thirst opens the cooler and there's no water in there. Some easy, simple advice that you can do if you've never been on a set before and you're trying to get like, oh, how do I get noticed by the producer, or the production manager? manager to keep getting hired. It's just stay busy, you know, stay busy, look for things to do. And if you don't have anything to do, ask, hey, anything to help you with. If you're always looking uh, to help, that's how you stay in the mind of of the producer. Keep your eyes and ears
0: open, your mouth shut and use common sense. That'll get you 90% of the way there. Do not ever wear a t-shirt that says director in the back. Yeah. Do not ever wear that. And, you know, don't go up to the director and ask if they need help. If anyone besides the DP or like on the camera team asks you to touch, move, or even look at piece. Of camera equipment, don't. Do not. Insurance doesn't cover that. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Is there something creative, you know, or is there a type of commercial that you haven't done that you want to?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's because... um Growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s in the States, you know, you, I got to see a lot of this commercials for toys. You can't really make those anymore, you know, because of the uh, FCC, you know, you can't really target stuff to children. That on the nose, right? It could be so fun. Just do one of those just for, for the fun of it, right? Just like the old Kenner yeah, and Hasbro yeah, commercials. Like, uh, what is it? The Nerf commercials. The Nerf commercials. <laughs> From the early 2000s, just like this kid's having fun just shooting. That would be so fun to do. That'd be so fun to do. Obviously, like now that, that doesn't really, unless you're doing stuff for social media, right? right uh, social media doesn't have those restrictions yet mm-hmm. and it's kind of more open it's kind of the wild west to how you can advertise but that would be so fun just to get to like just you know shoot like a like a nerf commercial oh man water balloon commercial oh yep. that'd be so super soaker yeah there you go that's a good one too yeah yeah would love uh, that what a What does the future look like for you? I've been producing for 10 years now. Actually, this is my 10th anniversary coming up soon. Happy anniversary. Thank you. you. Producing. But yeah, so I'm trying to to hopefully get some like passion projects. I don't have many. You know, I don't have time to have passion projects. I'm going from job to job. Uh, But hopefully doing some of like small little docs. I brought this up before. The whole branded content thing is a big thing for advertisers, for brands, even for studios. Branded content is king, you know. Right now... Every single major company is competing for your time, right? They want to. That's where the money is made now. You know, if you if you look at things like 300 years in the past, you know, you made money by owning land, right? You conquered land, right? 400 years in the past. Now, like you make money by taking people's time, right? So your your time is money, right? So I think that this whole branded content thing is a big is a big thing. There's a lot of stuff you can do to develop this whole idea, and I think like these little tiny docs are really cool. I have some ideas going on. I might end up shooting if I have some time. I'm Originally from Colombia, from Barranquilla, from the coast. And there's a big, uh, there's a very sub world, very small sub world of uh, canary battles like the bird. canneries, but they don't fight, they sing, right? So there's this big competitions where birds uh, battle each other through singing and there's judges, that judge the singing of a cannery and you can, and you know, in Colombia, there's a couple hundred dollars. You can, you know, if you buy a good cannery, you can cost you some money because there's this sub sub world. And I really want to do something with that because I think it's a very interesting story. Yeah. So yeah, something like that would be cool. Professional level. There is a, uh, you know, bigger and better jobs. Hopefully one day Super Bowl commercial. That'd be great. I wouldn't discount that. And yeah, for me, it's very important to be able to give my friends an opportunity in the industry. You know, trying to, especially people that want to get food in the door. Any students out there, you know, that want to get the food in the door. I am happy to help bring them on set. Uh, because it was hard for me to get in to get in the door, so I want to make it easier for people that do are passionate about this to get in. So don't discount commercials. There's still experience to be gained from that. Is there any advice you would give your younger self? Oh, I actually got a good one. So this ho- whole campaign that I shot with Judd and Chloe, we also got to sh- uh, shoot with uh, uh, Zoe Chanel when I was in my uh, early twenties. She was like, I think for many, many of us, she was like the ultimate crush. And I got to shoot with her and talk to her very, obviously very briefly. I, if I would have told my younger film school self, 15 years later, I'll be shaking the hand of Zoe Deschanel I would have been like, no, that's never gonna happen. The advice I would have told myself is don't discount anything, you know, this industry is gonna open a lot of doors, this industry is gonna take you a lot of places. And if you're passionate about it, and you're willing to put in the work, and you're willing to put in the hours, and you're willing to learn, and knock on the right doors, it's gonna open the world. You know, it it did for me, and obviously I was very lucky, but um, but yeah, I think that's what I would tell my 20 year old self, like, hey, listen, you're gonna, if you keep going down this path, you're gonna have a lot of opportunities to really get to understand the ins and outs of the industry. And like I said before, Never wanted to be a, a producer. I always wanted to do like art department stuff, and now I couldn't see myself not producing.
0: But it's also so important that you didn't just jump right in to producing. Like now
1: you have street cred. You <laughs> see something going on with the art department yeah. to like say that and kind of you know this part of this industry. I'll say again to all the people out there listening. You know this industry, the the role that you end up doing, you don't find it. It finds you. One of the reasons I I joke about why I ne- I went to film school is because I didn't like math, and now that's all I do. You know I look at numbers all day and I, I don't mind it. So don't discount anything. You know, the right role will find you. Side story. Yeah.
0: I was the same way. I hate math. I never got past algebra two in high school, but then in the Marine Corps, I learned trigonometry because yeah. I was a surveyor. And then when I get like, like you, when I got into production management yeah. and budgeting and things, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I kind of, I kind of love it. It's, it's kind of a, uh, like we talked about an accomplishment when all of a sudden like the numbers all add up and match up or, and you know, you find like, okay, I'm, why am I $1,100 off? You're digging through everything and that and, and realizing it. But again, it's uh in, in one way to look at it. Yeah. It's not creative, you know, in a traditional sense of creating art,
1: but you have to be creative to be successful at this job because so much of it is solution finding. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then, you know, something that people tend to forget is that even though I, film is one of the few industries. I mean, I guess you could also think about like modern, like the music industry, but like film is one of the few art styles that you need a whole crew, a whole circus, you know, a whole team to make happen. And there's so many possibilities out there. So many roles, so many, uh, so many little niche crew uh, specialties, right? Animal wranglers, uh, baby wranglers, you know, all this different stuff that you might not know that you're good at until you actually do it. And even non-film, I mean, if you're a tech person, you know, we were
0: talking about DITs oh, but before digital image tech, where, yeah. you know, you have to format and save and kind of like, you know, all this, you know, yeah. don't, don't look at it as video. Look at it as data management.
1: Did see that. Yeah. I did see that. Yeah.
0: You know, we've had an intimacy coordinator on the podcast. This has been great. Really a uh, lot of interesting information. Definitely opened my eyes to things that are going on. Uh, we want to thank you so much for being here today. We're happy to welcome you back on a podcast in the future. Anytime. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been a a true pleasure. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette San, along with associate producer Victor Ferreira and executive producer Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website at www.paradoxicalfilms.com for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at Cinema Pathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you can send any comments suggestions or feedback for future episodes be sure to subscribe to the cinema pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform be sure to join us for our next episode where we will continue to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the cinema pathway podcast this is the cinema pathway podcast we'll see you next time lights out